Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, with author, pastor and Bible teacher, Mike Beaumont, who's talking to David Tavner. Our focus this time is the book of Ezekiel. Who was Ezekiel, Mike? Well, Ezekiel was a priest that never got to be a priest. He was one of the people who'd been taken from Jerusalem and his beloved temple and was taken into exile along with a a first deportation. Now, uh, we mentioned in previous episodes how the mighty nation of Assyria gradually crumbled. It fell to Babylon in 612 BC and in 605 BC, Babylon completely overwhelmed the Egyptians at, at a battle called the Battle of Carchemish, which was a really big battle in the ancient world, leaving Babylon now free to dominate that vast swathe of the Middle East. And of course, to take over the Assyrian Empire, which included the northern nation of Israel. So as we said in a previous episode, Babylon now is sitting on the doorstep of Judah And as a way of exerting its influence and sort of keeping Judah in its place, it brought about a number of deportations of some of its leading citizens. So the very first one of those had been in 605 BC after that famous battle at Carchemish. That one included Daniel, whom we'll look at in a future episode. Then there was another one when it sort of turned the screws a bit tighter because Judah was sort of flexing its muscles and wanting to throw off Babylonian overlordship. Uh, That was in 597, and that included the guy we're looking at here and the book we're looking at, Ezekiel, before the final destruction of Jerusalem in 586, when pretty much the whole nation would be exiled. So he's a priest. He's been taken into exile almost a thousand miles away to Babylon, and the book opens with him saying in the 30th year, now that's a reference to him in his 30th year, when he was 30 years old, he's going to get this revelation. Why does he note that? Because that's the age that priests started their ministry. So from being a young boy as the son of a priest, he would have grown up knowing he was to be a priest one day. His dad would have trained him in the things to do. And as he got older, he would have learned more and more of what was needed of a priest. And now at the very age when he would have started putting all that into practice, he's not there in Jerusalem. He's in exile with this second deportation And Jerusalem is still standing at the moment and the temple's still there. And it's not fair. You could almost imagine him thinking at this point, because I was meant to be there in the temple with those other priests doing my work as a priest. And here I am stuck in exile a thousand miles away almost. And I can't do what I feel you've called me to do, God. And I always think this book must have started with some hidden mm, going on within him. (laughs) Because God has other plans for him. Oh, he certainly does. Isn't it great that God always has other plans for us? You know, very often we set out our lives, don't we? And we think this is how it's going to be. And and something happens and 
takes a twist, a return, or maybe some event happens, or we didn't get a job we'd hoped we would get, or some circumstances come that just seem to block our career development. But God always has a plan. And that's the way that the book of Ezekiel starts. Because in that 30th year, when he would have loved to have become a priest, God appears to him in exile and calls him to be a prophet. And it happens in the most incredible way. He's sitting out there in the desert by one of the uh, canals that were very common in that part of the world, linking the mighty rivers of the Tigris and the Euphrates, when suddenly he sees a dust storm coming from the desert. Now, nothing unusual in dust storms, wind storms. Uh, they happen in that part of the world. They suddenly come up, the wind whipping up the desert sand. But as he looks at this one, he sees that it's one that's not quite like any that he's seen before. And he suddenly sees there's like flashing lightning in it and, and, and brilliant light inside of it. And the more he looks, he, he starts to see the most weird thing. And he describes it as four living creatures that had sort of got the form of a man, but they'd got four faces and four wings and one had got the face of a man, another of a lion, and another of an eagle, another of an ox. And it just gets weirder and weirder as he goes on. And what he sees is a throne. But it's a throne that has got wheels on it. And these wheels are like, he describes it as wheels within wheels, like at right angles to one another, a bit like a gyroscope might look. So that in his vision... These wheels can go north-south or east-west, and the, he sees them darting and dashing all over the place. And there's these living creatures around these wheels. And, and the more he looks, what he realises he's starting to see in the midst of this incredible vision is a vision of nothing less than the throne of God. And the most amazing thing that he sees in this holy vision of the holy God on his throne is the fact that it's got wheels. I mean, he can hardly describe it. I mean, he, chapter one ends up with him saying, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. He's not saying it was. It was like the appearance of its likeness. It, it's the nearest I can get to describing what was going on. And he was saying this in exile, away from his beloved temple, God was still revealing something to him. Yeah, and and the very fact that God was revealing anything was incredible because what Ezekiel sees more than anything else that will be the foundation to everything else he'll go on to prophesy is that, you see, as a good priest, he, he always knew where God was. God could be found in the temple, the place where heaven met earth was on the wings of the cherubim outstretched over the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies in the beloved temple in Jerusalem. That was the throne of God. But what he sees in this vision is that the throne of God has come to them in exile. It's like God has a mobile throne, a mobile throne, not a mobile phone, though he probably has one of those as well, I imagine. 
God's got a mobile throne. And this was an incredible revelation for someone who had always believed that God's throne was there in the temple in Jerusalem. No, God's throne can be anywhere. These wheels can dart wherever they like. They can go wherever they like. Why? Because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, to quote from one of the Psalms. And so what he sees here is that God has come with them into exile. So the exile, yes, was his judgment on them, but it wasn't his abandoning of them. It was his discipline of them. And they come into exile in this sort of second deportation, one more big one to come. But God had gone there with them. I don't know about you, David, but I find that really encouraging to know that, you know, wherever we go, and frankly, even if at times we find ourselves in places we wished we had not been in, God can still be there with us. And that's what Ezekiel saw that day. And he is so overwhelmed by this thought that God has come to be with him. He falls down on his face. He's overwhelmed by this sense of the holy God being with him. And God has to say, son of man, stand up on your feet and I will talk to you. By the way, he's only called Ezekiel twice in the whole of the book. He's normally called son of man by God. 93 times he's called that. And of course, what that title does is is contrast his weakness and his humanness compared to the mighty God who is about to use him and call him in chapter two to go and be his messenger and go and be the prophet or go and be as he's called in chapter three, because this call covers the first three chapters of this book. In chapter three, God says, son of man, I called you to be a watchman for the house of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning. A watchman, of course, was the guy who patrolled the walls of the city at night, looked for any enemy coming, looked for the dawn coming and would call out in light of what he saw. So Ezekiel, who had been a priest, is now called to be a prophet, a watchman, to call out to God's people and share with them what God is showing to him. So a dramatic opening, to say the least. How does that sort of unfold through the following chapters? Well, if I sort of give you, again, a a quick overview, a bird's eye view of uh, his book, as we have done with with previous ones, Uh, the following chapters then, chapters 4 to 24, are really all about uh, predicting the fall of Jerusalem. Now, remember, it hasn't fallen yet. Babylon has exerted its power. They've imposed two deportations of leading citizens, of which he was one. But Jerusalem itself hasn't fallen and wouldn't do until 586 BC. So chapters 4 to 24 are all prophecies saying Jerusalem will surely fall. Don't think this is the end of it. There is more to come. And some of those prophecies we'll see in a moment come out in like some really weird symbolic acts, so they're acted out as well as spoken out. Then in the next block, chapters 25 to 32, there are prophecies about judgment, not now on Judah, but on the nations. So it's as if he's saying, and and don't you nations round about think that you're exempt from this because judgment is the destiny of everyone 
who rejects God. Then there's a, a third block, which is chapters 33 to 39, that are delivered after Jerusalem falls. So he gets the news that Jerusalem has fallen to the Babylonians in 586 BC. And it's now that judgment's clear, you know, there's no now possibility of people saying, oh, no, that's not going to happen. You see, all false hopes have now been shattered. And so in this block, Ezekiel now begins to offer hope to them, reminding them that God is still their shepherd, that God can take bones scattered across a dry valley and build them into his people again. And then there's a final section in chapters 40 to 48 where he looks forward to the glorious future that God is going to build for his people in the only way that he as a former priest can describe it. He described it as a gloriously restored temple where God will be with his people again. So four clear blocks of material there after his call to be a prophet. And you said earlier that the way that he communicated the message in many cases was a little bit unusual. I think that's been really polite. I mean, this is just like weird, man, you know. I suppose you might say, what's he been smoking? Is is almost like how it could feel. Of course, there's a serious side to it. All of these were God's word through him. And we did say in a previous episode that, you know, these prophets are not cardboard cutouts of one another. God used their character, their background, their training, how they thought and spoke through that. And I don't know what sort of character Ezekiel was, but, you know, he's certainly prepared to do some weird stuff. So, you know, whether he was a bit of an extrovert underneath, uh, who knows? Because I don't think God asks us to do things that, you know, consistently cut against who we are. In him, but we find him not just speaking out uh, some of his prophetic words, but actually acting them out. So, for example, in chapter four, God tells him to draw a picture of Jerusalem on a, a clay tablet, which is what they wrote on in those days, of course, and, and then stand the tablet up as though it were the city and act out a siege. And he says, This is what's going to happen. To Jerusalem. He's then told in that chapter he has to lie on his side, 390 days on his left side, 40 days on his right. Don't think we have to imagine that those are consecutive days where he lay on his side for that whole period. I think he probably went out, you know, into the market square or where everyone gathered and, you know, lay on his side 390 days on his left, 40 days on his right to symbolize, it seems, the the wickedness of God's people. On another occasion, he shaves all his hair off because God tells him to, by the way, each time. And then he burns that hair and he scatters it all around the city. Why? He's symbolizing what is going to happen to God's people, destroyed and scattered. In chapter 12, we find him packing up his bags and his suitcase, uh, almost to go on holiday, except it's to go into exile. In chapter 24, he'll cook meat in a cooking pot. And then when his wife dies, he's told not to mourn his wife who dies because it's going to be a picture of how really there should be no mourning for Jerusalem who has 
got the fate it deserved. So quite a wide range there of sort of quite, I mean, outlandish ways of depicting the message God has given. But of course, each time as he acts these out, he's also declaring this is what God's saying. So it's a way of sort of grabbing their attention. And remember, this is a people who've become really careless. Yeah, whatever. You know, the prophets have been speaking about what God's going to do for generations in Judah, and they'd not listen. So these are like punchy pictorial ways of trying to get their attention and say, look, look and listen. This is what God is going to do with our beloved Jerusalem unless the people change. And I fear they are not going to. And this is therefore their destiny. But it sounds like he's not just sort of thinking of another new way of visually trying to get the message across. This is coming from God. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, each time here, it's God who speaks to him. So chapter four, here's God speaking. Now, son of man, take a clay tablet, put it in front of you and draw the city of Jerusalem on it. Then lay siege to it, erect siege works against it, build a ramp against it. Exactly. And so each time it's God telling him to do these strange things. I, I do just want to go back, though, to say, you know, I don't think that God asks us to do things, you know, that are directly against who we are and, and our character. I think he asks all of us at times to do courageous things and to step out a bit beyond our comfort zone. But I think this reflects something of who this character of Ezekiel was, that perhaps he was something more of an extrovert, a, a showman, in the same way today that we get some preachers who are very quiet and methodical and, and others who are, you know, very funny or extrovert or tell stories. And we get God's word coming out through the preacher's character. And it can be just as powerful, even though it comes out in very, very different styles. And his style clearly seems to have been this more extrovert style. But each time it's not him thinking, right, what crazy thing can I do now to get their attention? Each time it's because God speaks to him and tells him to do this. Why? To grab their attention. It's as if their ears wouldn't listen over all these years. Well, use your eyes then and look at this and hear through this enacted parable. I mean, bearing in mind that the people are in exile and indeed threatened in Jerusalem with the fall of Jerusalem. So, you know, this is serious stuff, but they're still not getting the message. I know it's incredible, really, isn't it? But, you know, I think, come on, think of ourselves. How many times has God spoken to us? And, you know, human beings have got an incredible capacity for explaining things away that they don't want to hear or don't want to do, don't they? I mean, come on, you and I <laughs> have probably done it in our own lives. I'm sure our listeners are sort of smiling and thinking, yeah, yeah, I've done that. And, and we can rationalise things. You know, we, we, we've always got a good reason for it. And despite it seeming as clear as the nose on your face when you read it with hindsight, of course, hindsight is a wonderful gift. And they just constantly rationalised it. I don't think they should have done because there was prophet after prophet after prophet who had brought these messages to God's people. You know, Micah, Isaiah, Nahum, Zephaniah, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, Obadiah, all of these people had prophesied that judgment was coming and they said, no, no, and, and had rationalised it each time. 
Yeah, we seem to have a weird ability to rationalise what we don't want to hear and to rewrite what we don't want to hear as, well, to use a popular expression, fake news. You mentioned a valley and some dry bones just now. Another strange-sounding picture. Yeah, this is in the section where Ezekiel sees that once judgment has come, God will come and rescue his people. There's a turn in chapter 34 where God says, because your shepherds haven't cared for you, he's using shepherds there as a picture for their leaders, I myself will come as the great shepherd and do this for you. Of course, that would be fulfilled ultimately in Jesus, the good shepherd. But then he goes on and by chapter 37, he uses a different image of how God's going to come and what he's going to do for his people. And this is a message of, I mean, incredible hope for them at this time. And chapter 37 begins uh, with these words, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. So clearly this seems to have been in some sort of vision that he has. And as he's brought in this vision to the middle of this valley, he says it was full of bones, 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 human bones scattered all over the place. And God asks him this question, can these bones live? This is death everywhere. Oh, death absolutely everywhere. In fact, it says these bones were very dry. In other words, they'd been there an awful long time. Ezekiel's very wise at this point, by the way, when God says, can these bones live? He says, oh, sovereign Lord, um, you alone know. <laughs> and then God says, OK, here's what I want you to do. I want you to prophesy to these very dry bones and said, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. I'm going to make my breath enter into you and you'll come to life and I'll act attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you. I'll put breath in you and you will come to life and then you will know that I'm the Lord. And so Ezekiel prophesies to them. He says, I prophesied as I was commanded and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound and the bones came together, bone to bone and, and skin covered and there's still no breath in them and God says prophesy breath to them so I did and and suddenly the breath comes into them and as I prophesied they came to life and stood up on their feet a vast army and God goes on to say this is a picture of what I am going to do for my people so what they had become and what would certainly become as this final destruction of Jerusalem had taken place and the vast bulk of exiles were now joining him in exile in great dismay. And imagine, this is this is really uh, very much like we see today at times, you know, those forced migrants who go to another nation who've had to leave their nation because of, of war and, and everything that they have believed in has collapsed and been taken from them 
And the question you must have got is why and what's the future hold for me now? And what he sees the future holding is my people might look like very dry bones scattered across a desert, a dry valley at the moment. But I tell you this, Ezekiel, and tell this to my people, as surely as in this vision you prophesied and those dry bones came together and formed a man and formed an army and my breath came in them. That is what I am going to do for my people. And of course, historically, that is what would happen because at the end of the 70 years that Jeremiah prophesied that the exile would last, God would cause another mighty empire to arise. After Assyria came Babylon and after Babylon came Persia and the mighty King Cyrus who allowed conquered peoples to go back home, and that included Judah. And so this would be fulfilled. They would go home and rise up again. I probably need to add that some interpreters think this might happen again at the end of time when God restores scattered Jews from around the world to its nation. Though the immediate context of Ezekiel's prophecy is undoubtedly the return from Israel when King Cyrus would permit them to at the end of the exile. So a very powerful message of hope, actually, despite their complacency, ignoring the prophecies one after the other, God is still in control. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that stand out in this book is a whole message of God's sovereignty, God's power, God's commitment to do what is right and God's commitment to his people. It's interesting that the very last words of the book of Ezekiel is the Lord is there. I find that really powerful. Here he is speaking to an exiled people who will shortly get even more exiles coming to join them and they will have to be there for Jeremiah's prophesied 70 years. But the promise that the Lord is there, where? Well, they're in exile with them. How did the book start? With God having a mobile throne and coming to join them. Soon the other exiles would join them. And yet the Lord is there with them and he will be there as he takes them back. And uh, I mentioned earlier that in chapters 40 to 48, he sees that restoration, that hope depicted in really the only way that, that he can understand it best. As a priest, how is he wired? Well, he's wired to think about temples. Hmm. And so what he sees God doing when he restores his people is building a fabulous temple, more glorious than ever it had been before it must be surely a symbolic temple because the dimensions of it just wouldn't fit into Jerusalem. So I think he's he's seeing picture language here of the restoration of God's people in the only way you can understand. It will be like a glorious, glorious temple. Why a temple? Because that's where God was. That's where you met with God and the Lord will be there, he sees. But the good news of Ezekiel is that the Lord is also there in exile with them. So a, a book that reminds us of God's sovereignty, power, presence, 
and a book that's full of hope in the midst of despair. I was going to say, how should we read this book today? It would be easy to sort of write it off as just a history with this extrovert involved, but it's got to have relevance for us today. Absolutely. And that's the wonderful thing about the Bible, isn't it? What we're seeing as we are working through our books in these episodes, but also what we can see as we read from God's word day by day. There's always something that is relevant for today. But it's so often in understanding what it meant for them then that we see the impact for us today. And I think what I would take from this today is that no matter what circumstance we are in, we can believe that the Lord is always there. God has a mobile throne. You know, that's the vision I take away from Ezekiel more than anything. It's the one that grabs me. I love that one, that there are wheels on God's throne and there's no place where it can't go, no situation I go into where his throne can't come with me. Frankly, no situation I go into that's a mess, even of my own making, because this was a mess of their making. If only they'd listened to God they wouldn't have ended up there. So I would say today, even if you've ended up in a mess and you know it's your own stupid fault, your own decisions, your own sin, do you know what? Call out to God because he is still the Lord who is there and he can be with us wherever we are. And the message that comes out of this book is a message of great hope. The holy God is the one who calls every son of man every human, to stand on his feet and I'll speak to you. And all we need to say is, Lord, yeah, it was my own mess that got me here. But I believe you are always the Lord who is there and the Lord who has a plan and a hope for me. And that for me is the underlying message of encouragement for Ezekiel. Wherever we are, whatever we've done, whatever we fear about the future. God is the Lord who is there. Mike Bowman has been talking to David Taverner. Listen to more episodes anytime. Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, from Genesis to Revelation. This is a United Christian Broadcasters production. For more about UCB, check out the website at ucb.co.uk.